SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program, well, tonight, Fast Voices Showcase, an important evening of music and conversation celebrating the vital contribution First Nations musicians and composers make to the vitality of the orchestra sector will be taking place tonight in Melbourne. The event will premiere two works by composers Wanda Last and James Henry, which will be performed by members of Australia's first ensemble for classically trained First Nations musicians, Ensemble Datala, alongside members of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. In the program, we'll be joined by Wanda Last to learn about Fast Voices Showcase and Awakening, her debut composition for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Also in the program today, Kent Morris, CEO of The Torch, will join us to explore The Torch's Confined 14, an exhibition of works from Indigenous artists in prison and post-release. NITV Radio will also look at the disturbing increase in referee abuse in football, a situation that's stunning away many referees. All these stories coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio. And this afternoon, we are broadcasting from now on the Kulin Nation. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Today marks National Sorry Day and six years since the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Growing concerns among firefighters that parts of the charged seven-story building in Sydney's CBD could still collapse. And in sport, some car on the cusp of claiming her fourth Women's Super League title in a row. Today is National Sorry Day. Every year, May the 26th acknowledges and remembers survivors of the stolen generations. The first National Sorry Day was held on this day in 1998, a year after the Bringing Them Home report was tabled in Parliament. The report resulted from a government inquiry into past policies which caused children to be forcibly removed from their families and communities. Link-up chairman Uncle Kenneth Paul Murphy says it's always a sad day. People don't understand that, you know, they think, oh, yeah, we treat the Aboriginals good, we, we do this, we do that. But they don't, they don't understand what happened before. A lot of these girls are taken away from their mothers and, and, and 
fathers and you know family and um, yeah, there's a lot of lot of sorrow there link up is an organization that helps aboriginal or Torres Strait islanders over 18 years of age living in victoria or tasmania to connect with family culture and traditional country Opposition Deputy Leader Susan Lee has defended the Liberal Party position to vote no in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. Parliament has been debating the bill which lays out the wording for the question Australians will have to answer sometime between August and December and proposed changes to the Constitution. Ms. Lee says the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advisory Body will not address the disadvantage Indigenous communities face. It's okay to vote no, secure in the knowledge that you want the best outcome for Indigenous Australians, as everyone in this parliament should do. Strong speeches were delivered, and the strength of Peter Dutton's speech was his determination to secure those better outcomes for Indigenous Australians. So yes, there's grand speeches in this place and people point to them from time to time, but they don't deliver the outcomes on the ground that we need. Today, May 26, also marked the six-year anniversary of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. On May 26, 2017, more than 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates met at Uluru for the First Nations Constitutional Convention. The Uluru Statement asks Australians to work together to build a better future by establishing a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution and the establishment of a Makarata Commission for the purpose of treaty-making and truth-telling. Indigenous leaders will meet at Uluru today to mark the six years since Australians first heard the Uluru Statement from the Heart and months and months before a vote is held on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament later this year. Uluru Dialogue Co-Chair Pat Anderson says this must be the year Australia makes the words of the statement a reality. A witness to the fire that tore through two heritage-listed buildings in Sydney's CBD on Thursday afternoon says they saw a group of high school students running from the building. Fu Tang, who works at a locksmith, store across the, a locksmith store across the street, told nine newspapers he saw a group of children running from the former hat factory as smoke began to pour out of it. There are growing concerns among firefighters that parts of the charred seven-story building could still collapse. Thousands of people watched on Thursday afternoon as more than 120 firefighters from 30 fire trucks battled the blaze in Surrey Hills. Police and investigators from Fire and Rescue New South Wales will now come through the wreckage of the building and another empty structure which was set alight. Australian households face a 25% rise in power bills as the energy regulator sets new ceiling prices. The default market offer established by the Australian energy regulator determines the maximum price retailers can charge in certain regions. From the 1st of July, residential customers can expect price hikes ranging from 19.6% to 24.9%, while small businesses may see increases of 14.7% to 28.9%. 
Energy and Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen says the price increases would have been higher if the government did not intervene and eligible households for rebates will see a decrease in their power bills. Of course these are big increases, uh, but also, as the regulator made clear herself this morning, without the intervention of the Albanese government, they would have been much bigger. Indeed, uh, the regulator, Claire Savage, this morning said that she was fearing increases of 50%. And in addition to the coal and gas caps, which we introduced in December, we have negotiated with each state and territory rebates uh, for households, uh, more than 5 million households, to ensure that they are shielded from the worst of the impacts. Opposition spokesperson for energy and climate change, Ted O'Brien, says the Labor government has broken its promises of cheaper power bills. I think at a time when Australian households are thinking, could it get any harder, it's going to get harder. From the 1st of July, some households will be looking at paying an extra $600 just to keep their lights on every year. Middle Australia have been left out of the federal budget and they are going to be copping at the hardest as prices increase. Australia has joined Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom and the United States in accusing the Chinese government of cyber attacks. The Five Eyes Eyes Intelligence Alliance, which Australia is a part of, has called out Chinese Communist Party-linked actor Volt Typhoon for attacking critical U.S. infrastructure. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill tells ABC Radio it's a national security risk. The Australian government is never going to compromise on our national security and this activity should not be occurring. There is no question about that and we're not going to be shy when we know who is responsible for that activity. We have the evidence before us and we're not going to be transparent about it for other reasons. It's important for the national security of our country uh, that we're transparent and upfront with Australians about the threats that we face and that's why we've joined the advisory. China's foreign ministry officials says reports of Chinese hackers spying on U.S. critical infrastructure are a disinformation campaign initiated by the United States. Foreign ministry spokesperson Mao Ning says the hacking allegations are a collective disinformation campaign from the intelligence sharing alliance between the five eyes. I would like to say that it is a report that has been patched together with a serious lack of evidence and is extremely unprofessional. We have also noted that similar reports have been released simultaneously by government agencies such as the US National Security Agency and relevant agencies in the UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand and other countries. It is clear that this is a collective disinformation campaign by the US to mobilise the countries in the Five Eyes Alliance for geopolitical purposes. Western intelligence agencies and officials at Microsoft say a state-sponsored Chinese hacking group was spying on a wide range of U.S. critical infrastructure organisations from telecommunications to transportation hubs. The United Nations Secretary-General says the arrest of a man accused of genocide and crimes against humanity in Rwanda in 1994 sends a powerful message. Fuljans Kaishema is alleged to have ordered the killing of some 2,000 Tutsis during that period. He had been on the run since 2001. 
UN spokesperson for the Secretary General Stephen Dujaric says their thoughts are first and foremost with the victims. Mr. Kaishima's apprehension sends a powerful message that those who are alleged to have committed such crimes cannot evade justice and will eventually be held accountable even more than a quarter century later. An estimated 800,000 ethnic Tutsis and Hutu moderates were killed during Rwanda's genocide orchestrated by an extremist Hutu regime and executed by local officials and ordinary citizens in the rigidly hierarchical society. Back home, a polar blast is set to sweep through the east coast of Australia today. A forecast of rain, damaging winds, low temperatures and even snow is expected to hit large parts of the southeast. Dropping temperatures will also continue for Sydney, Melbourne and Hobart, while heavy rain is expected for Adelaide this weekend. And in sport, the unstoppable Sam Kerr could be on the cusp of receiving yet another award. The Matilda's captain was recently awarded England's Football Winners Writers Association's prestigious Football of the Year trophy for the second consecutive season. Kerr is now on the brink of claiming the Women's Super League title for the fourth season in a row. But first, she and fellow Chelsea teammates will need to face a reading in Saturday's match to secure the title. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny, 24 degrees, Perth, mostly sunny, 19, Adelaide, a shower of 2.15, Melbourne, a shower of 2.14 degrees, Hobart, shower of 2.14, Albury, Wodonga, sunny, 11 degrees, Canberra, showers, 13, Wollongong, showers, easing, 17, Sydney, a shower of 2, 18 degrees, Newcastle, a shower of 2 as well, on the top of 19, Brisbane, sunny, 26, Townsville, sunny as well, 27 degrees, Cairns partly cloudy 28, Alice Springs mostly sunny 14, Darwin sunny 31 and the Torres Strait Islands mostly cloudy day at the top of 28 degrees and that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 pm or anytime online. I'm Bertrand Tungandame and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from NAM on the Kulin Nation this Friday afternoon. Coming up next, conversation with the Vonda Last, exploring the contribution First Nations musicians and composers make to the orchestral music. So Kent Morris, CEO of The Torch, will join us to talk about incredible artists in, in or out of uh, Victoria's detention system and how art supports a successful reintegration in the community post-release. We also hear how being consta- constantly abused by members of the public is driving more and more football referees away from the job. First, conversations about Faster Voices Showcase. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Buzz Voices Showcase is an important evening of music and conversation celebrating the vital contribution First Nations musicians and composers make to the ongoing vitality of the orchestral sector. And I'm pleased to say I've been joined by Vonda Last, whose work is one of the two works premiering that night. Vonda First of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. 
Thank you. It's great to be able to talk with you. Now, your work, Awakening, is one of the two works that will be premiering that night. Can you tell us about uh, this uh, new composition? It's been a um, just a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to extend my um, compositional work um, into uh, an ensemble, so using a, a, a wide variety of instruments. My background has really been as a singer-songwriter, so I've been writing songs for a number of years and working um, with a band. So this opportunity to work with an ensemble was just, um, it was it was a gift and I, I've, uh, you know, I've taken it um, as an opportunity to extend myself and to be able to incorporate new sounds and new ways of expression um, with the different instruments and working with those instruments in different ways. So this work, was it specifically uh, composed for this uh, event or uh, it's something you created and then it happens to be selected for the event? So um, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra has a First Nations Composers Initiative. So um, James and I are the first two recipients um, of this program. So this will be the first time that... um, to First Nations people have been given this opportunity and the first time um, it will be played this week, the pieces that have been created for this program. And the title Awakening uh, is in English, but you're also mostly renowned for your contribution to reviving Indigenous languages. Why an English title when you could have used uh, uh, one of the languages that you champion yeah. and celebrate? Um, look, it's, it's probably um, I did not grow up speaking my language, so it's probably a case of having to you know, go back to um, country and to family to investigate what would be the most appropriate word to use. And that, that's certainly something I can um, consider doing um, and have that available for the night. Um, but I have incorporated uh, in, in the conversation about what this piece is about using um, language words. So, um, I mean, an, another word I could have used would be water, which is country and belonging to place. So um, perhaps that could, would be a, probably a suitable uh, title for this. It's, it is talking about country. It's talking about the way the country comes alive um, through uh, the day and into the evening, and what happens in the in the atmosphere on the ground, um, the movements, the creatures, you know, the, the the human presence. So, you know, that that could have been another word um, I've used. Um, I do talk about the the brana, the land. So perhaps, you know, water could have been another word I could have used for that title. Uh, you're one of the two artists or composers with uh, James uh, Henry to create works and perform with uh, the MSO. And now you'll be performing with uh, First Nations musicians, uh, Assemble Datala, alongside uh, members of the MSO. From someone who comes from uh, a singer-songwriter background, how has it been working uh, with uh, yeah, this ensemble and uh, the MSO? Uh, it, it, it's been um, 
Um, overwhelming in the sense that you know that I I understand the um, the amount of time and effort that people who are at this level uh, of performance have put into their craft. They're elite musicians, and many of them have have, have been um, you know performing at this high level for many many years. So to have that opportunity to work with them is is you know very grateful and thankful and um we james and i both did have a chance um at the end of last year to come over for a day um and part of that um was to be able to meet some some of the musicians and to have an opportunity to you know do a bit of a q a with them in regards to their their instrument um you know what what are the possibilities in terms of how their instruments can be used and how how they work in with other instruments, and how they work within um, you know an ensemble. So um, you know, I I um, learnt the piano as a child, and I did that for six years, and then I um, continued on to, with singing, um, doing classical training. And for a couple of years while I was in high school, I I um, learnt the saxophone in the school band. So I, I had a little bit of an insight into the classical style of music to be able to step into that that world and with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra was just amazing for me um, and to, you know, listening to the work that they've performed and, you know, I, I've, I've listened to the uh, pieces that they've performed that Deborah Cheatham has written and the works that were conducted by Aaron um, recently, you know, it's just a, um, amazing to to see the different style of music that is now incorporating a First Nations um, perspective and lends into what you know has been a very Western type of music. And where to from here? Is it your first uh, piece uh, composed for orchestra? Uh, yes. Oh. Yes, so for me, it's 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 a first time opportunity, and where to from here? I, um, I guess I'll wait and see. I'll get through this um, get through this week and this performance, and um, you know, I'm always open to you know any any opportunities that might come my way. Who knows what's around the corner? What you know? What what doors might might open? Or certainly, I've always been someone who's um, been. Um, uh, wanting to pass on experiences and knowledge and skills to the next generation, and I'd certainly be, you know, um, open to working with, you know, younger um, Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people who might be interested in pursuing this sort of area of comp- composition, and you know, just having a chance to, um, you know, speak to them about my, my experience. That was my final question, but I wouldn't just uh, close the conversation like that. So any closing thoughts on your part or something we may have missed that you'd like to add to the conversation? Um, no, look, other than, you know, having met uh, Deborah Cheaton you know, over 10 years ago, it really took me back to a time, you know, back when I was a much younger person. Um, it, never, it never occurred to me that, you know, going into the classical world could be an option for me as a, um, an Aboriginal young person. And just to, to see what's happened, what's transpired recently, um, certainly over the last 10 years in the classical world, um, that more and more First Nations people 
uh, as spaces interval with creative um, creativity, with music, and all, all a range of performances, dance, etc. It's it's good to see because you know we we are we have a significant place in this nation, you know, as the custodians, the original custodians of this country. Wunderlust, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio about your upcoming uh, appearance at the First Voices Showcase uh, event. Thank you so much, Richard. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Coinciding with National Reconciliation Week, Confined 14 exhibition features 470 artworks from 420 artists from across Victoria, including 232 in-prison artists and 170 in-community artists. Some of these artists are looking to make their first sale at the exhibition, but others are established artists who are completing large-scale public commissions and projects. Kent Morris, CEO of The Torch, has just joined us on NITV Radio to explore Confined 14, an event dedicated to a successful reintegration of inmates in the community. Welcome to NITV Radio, Kent. Thanks, Bertrand. It's great to be back here again with you. Now, this is a record number. The talk just goes from one record to another record. Every year, things just keep improving. And this time around, well, close to 500 artworks are exhibited, not just in one space. You also have different areas where you're exhibiting. Yes, look, it's quite extraordinary how the exhibition grows every year, and that's in relation to the participation in the program, which also grows every year. And that's partly down to the success of the program, which was built on the the lived experiences, ideas, thoughts and knowledges of the, the men and women who the program would be for. But also, we don't see any improvement in incarceration rates. So we'd like to see the numbers going down instead of going up, quite frankly. But it's fantastic that a program like this is available and delivered by the torch and that the men and women can access it in prison and on their release from prison. But what really needs to happen is there's less of our our people in prison. And the second gallery, that's an extraordinary show by very resilient women artists who've come through the prisons program and now reconnected back to the community and form a very strong cohort of our post-release program. And they're really lighting the way and, and showing that example of what can happen to keep connected to, to culture and to the art process, even amongst the many difficulties and challenges being faced to produce those beautiful artworks that are on show in Gallery 2. And uh, yeah, something I should have mentioned in the introduction is that uh, the torch uh, supports artists who are in jail or who have uh, been released and helps their positive and successful reintegration in the community. And not only now we see 470 artworks from 420 artists, but every year the torch is just uh, kicking goals and uh, successfully rehabilitating many of these men and women in greater numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And we're there alongside the men and women on their journey. So I like to think that the the men and women are are doing the hard yards and, and doing the heavy lifting and their ambitions and aspirations are very important and we try and provide the best support we can at the torch to support them on their journey none of the men and women in the program over the years have ever said they want to be where they are and that's their goal in life but there's been many obstacles along the way and this process around connection to art and expressing stories through culture sharing them with the community and and building 
economic participation and stability has shown that change can be made and change is possible. But again, the, the voices of the men and women need to be listened to and heard and the torch's role is to support them on that journey. Currently, you have more than six in, 600 Indigenous men and women connected to the torch and the project has also grown because uh, last time we ever had you in the studio about six years ago you had maybe a couple of uh, you know handful of employees and now you have uh, two dozen employees uh, staff members and uh, some of them the majority of whom are transitioning through the in-prison program yeah it's been a it's been a uh <laughs> period of, of high growth uh, in terms of connection to the program, which has meant we'd have had to try and grow the, grow the program and support for the program uh, through our funding, which we're still finding challenging. We need more support around this program and organisation to keep delivering it to the, at any one time, you know, 500 to 600 men and women who are connected to it. As time goes on, there needs to be a greater appreciation for community-built programs, programs built on lived experiences our First Nations staff, we have 13 and we have a total number of 24 staff. So it's also about combining skills and knowledges and experiences from the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And six of our staff, yes, are men and women who's come through the program and now work at the Torch, either delivering that program back or working on different aspects of the organisation. And one of the most successful ones happens to be one of the artists as well. Sean Miller is uh, my superstar. I like talking to him and I like his artwork and I see that he's even winning uh, awards left, right and centre. <laughs> yeah, Sean has had an incredible journey from the first time I met him nearly 12 years ago now at Loddon Prison and what he was doing and the support through the torch and his determination and aspiration as well. He was able to successfully navigate through his prison sentence um, and while doing that was in the Melbourne Now exhibition at that time and his works were collected by the National Gallery of Victoria. He navigated through his parole. We've been by his side all the way and he's been working now with us successfully delivering the program back into prison, back into community. He now runs our public projects side of the organisation which is our public murals which builds skills and again work experience and economic opportunity for men and women in the program, and we're doing more and more murals around Melbourne. Yeah, and uh, Sean was so successful, he's the first, actually, former inmate allowed back inside to deliver programs and support others and uh, help um, successful uh, reintegration into community. Do you have any other cases like Sean? Or? Look, absolutely. So Chris Austin, whose story is well documented in the Art of Incarceration, which is currently beaming around the world on Netflix, that documentary. Many of the artists that come through the program have a desire to, to want to give back and to provide their experience and knowledge back into the program. So we have a number of artists that go back in and some of our staff who have also come through the program, Felicity Schaefer-Smith being one of them, goes back into the women's prisons and, and just talks and expresses her story and shares her story so that there's a, a sharing of knowledge and experience and also that idea of mentorship and providing models where people can see that it is possible that there's a different way and this program and its philosophy and the support around it which is very much driven again by the the aspirations and and desires and hard work of the men and women in the program that can provide a, a platform and an opportunity and just a thought process that there's a different pathway to the one that people might imagine or the stereotype of just uh, the constant reoffending that can come from the circumstances the men and women find themselves in. So for 55% of our community, 
will return to prison after their initial sentence. Um, and an evaluation of the TORCH program found that those that stay connected to the TORCH program upon release from prison, that really navigates down to around 10% returning to prison. So the recidivism rates drops? Well, it's significant. It's an extraordinary drop. The challenge that we've faced, or one of the challenges we've faced, has been to try and maintain the connectivity to the program once the men and women are released from prison because the challenge has become so difficult. Um, we've worked very hard on that. So we now have a, a fantastic cohort of men and women in the community um, working very hard on their process and around, again, building greater confidence, self-esteem, cultural pride and strength, connection to the community through the sharing of these beautiful artworks. And that often leads to more stable housing, which can then lead to employment and education opportunities and that ability to be freed of the criminal justice system. The exhibition is going on until the 4th of June, but some artworks, of course, all of them deserve uh, exposure, but uh, maybe a word or two about the artists. Well, there's so many, 420 this year, I'll try and pick a couple of examples. Um, So Daniel Church, who is currently represented in Melbourne now at the National Gallery of Victoria. So Daniel started his journey with the torch while he was incarcerated, and he found himself in a very deep and dark place um, that he wasn't sure he could pull himself out of. But he made a small painting for our Future Dreaming exhibition, which was just a beautiful work, and it was purchased, and that really spurred him on and gave him more impetus to start creating more artworks and expressing his culture and working through some of the feelings he was going through. Paintings, extraordinary wood carvings. Upon release, he was able to hold his own exhibition down in Wonthaggy, and through this process, he was also caught the eye of the National Gallery of Victoria, who not only acquired his beautiful... Budjan family, which are six woodcarved pelicans. Um, they also included that in the Melbourne Now exhibition. So that's quite an extraordinary journey from not being able to see a day ahead in the future to now being actively involved. Daniel worked three days setting up Confined 14 with myself and the Torch staff. So he learnt what it looks like for a bear gallery to transform into 470 artworks being coordinated and he worked on all aspects of it. So these are just some of the trajectories that we can see for men and women who connect to the program. Yeah, and I have to remind our listeners, this should be my last question, uh, our listeners, that uh, the exhibition is actually taking place uh, in the midst of uh, National Reconciliation Week. Can you tell us a word or two about uh, this uh, calendar, having this event coincide with National Reconciliation Week? Well, we think it's very important. So in partnership with the Glenora City Council Gallery and the Glenora Council, we believe that raising awareness around issues such as Indigenous incarceration and the huge over-representation that is ongoing in this country for our people is something that needs to be raised and we need to bring people along the journey and we need people to, to walk with us on this journey. And one of the best ways for us to do that is to provide a forum for men and women in the program to share their stories and, and their thoughts, feelings and, and hopes and challenges through these extraordinarily beautiful artworks. So when people walk into the, the gallery to seek and find 14, it's an explosion of colour and culture and it's, it's very vibrant and it has a lot of images around totem animals and country and, and family and kinship. And these stories are very engaging for the audience, but what's behind them is always a desire to reconnect with family and community and to take that weight of the criminal justice system away, because that weight is very heavy on our community. And so I feel that it's 420 men and women, 420 First Nations men and women, 
sharing their stories and being heard and having a voice to share with the community and to create that interaction and support around an issue that this country just isn't addressing in any meaningful way at this point in time. And Maurice, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank you, Bertrand. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, referees and officials are an integral part of community and professional sport, but many are turning away due to the level of abuse they receive. Some organizations say a significant increase in the abuse of officials this year has been on field but also on social media, as Sean Wells reports. Run back, run out, stop, make it a little bit more challenging. These young football referees in Melbourne are practicing their skills. They're running through offside drills, which is one of the more difficult decisions a referee must make. Astro Sakalis is one of the referees involved. I had a keen interest for the whistle when I was a bit younger. Um, my sister used to play, uh, my dad used to coach and mum used to be involved, so I decided to take it up through there and then once I finished up playing, um, pursued it and um, it's kind of helped me um, have some transferable skills throughout work and stuff um, and also keep fit and engage with the game, um, which I quite enjoy. Football Victoria's referee development manager, Andrew Memorakis, says the organisation has no difficulty finding referees eager to get involved. Yeah, look, we, we want to recruit anyone who loves the sport. There's so many different facets to, to join. So one of them could be that you want to get some pocket money. You know, you're 14, 15 years old, it's sort of your first job. Um, there's a lot that do come to us who are passionate about playing and Probably 90% of those who do join and who we recruit actually are active in the football community, either as a coach or a player. It's the retention of referees that's proving to be a challenge. The main deterrent is the verbal and physical abuse of officials. Courtney Van Dyson says she's received verbal attacks aimed at her gender. Getting told, get back into the, into the kitchen where you belong, you don't know the rules, why are you even here, you're female, why are you giving these decisions, why are you listening to a female? Like, it shouldn't matter if I'm male or female. Like, my referee counterparts see me the exact same as equal, so why can't all the players and the spectators and the coaches see me as equal as well? She says the abuse is getting worse since crowds returned after the pandemic. I've never had any until this year, honestly. Um, and then, I, yeah, I don't know if it's because we're at, at a higher level. Um, but, yeah, I've received it both in the male and the female divisions. Last month, a man was charged after allegedly attacking a football referee in Sydney. Referee development manager Andrew Memorakis says that was confronting to see. I think that the biggest thing is the impact it has on on other people in our lives. So I shared that with my fiance, and when she saw it, she immediately got sick to her stomach and thought, well, that's not safe. You know, why are you going out there? You've got a newborn son now. Football Victoria has welfare officers at games and is also using a phone app to try and make it safer for referees. The Ref Live app allows referees to track their match day experiences, so the organisation will know if a particular club has a history of abusing officials. It's been used uh, across across the board at all all levels, junior levels, um, and with that data, we can then use it to actually go out to clubs and educate them on what the abuse does to the individual. Other codes across the country are struggling to attract enough referees at grassroots level. Last year, the AFL claimed at the community level it was 5,000 referees short. Rugby League is also experiencing a shortage. 
from your terminology there, Heath, right, you're virtually saying it's either a send-off or a penalty, there's no middle ground. Because you're saying you didn't think it was forceful and stuff like Dungutty that. Dungutty so man, Gavin Badger, refereed 300 NRL games, and now he's training the next generation in New South Wales. He says the poor treatment of professional referees is turning people away. I think um, in this day and age with social media and, and the amount of um, TV shows dedicated to particular sports and in particular rugby league in, in our sport, we've got quite a few um, where they have to feel content and a lot of the times it's talking about referees' decisions and I think um, at the elite level they over, overly scrutinise the officials. Um, I think that's, that's a big thing which doesn't make it very, um, you know, a, a, a good option for young kids to come into if they think that that's the case. He wants to see more Indigenous and female referees pick up the whistle. You know, we need to look at any, any area where we are deficient and have smaller numbers that we can improve because we need to build our base um, as big as we can and, and have as many people involved as possible. Sean Wales, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And uh, that's all we have for on NITV Radio this Friday afternoon. Bertrand Tunendame, I'm Bertrand Tunendame, thanking you for your company today and also wishing you an excellent and safe weekend. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.